In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I've always been interested in the history of modernity in the growth of science, technology, urbanization, and industrialization, because I think through it, we can define, analyze, and interrogate how we think and how we do things today. We can look at where our attitudes, our sensibilities, and our beliefs come from, why they emerged, and whether they're useful or not. We can denormalize what we think of as being normal. Because it's not just the past. As James Baldwin said, history is not the past, it's the present. We carry our history with us. It's the totality of how you feel, your routines, what you're doing, how you perceive people, friends, family, the world, what our cultural perspectives are right now and tomorrow. We use the past to answer questions about the present that guide us into the future. But at the moment I have a different reason for thinking about modern life. After living in London for quite a long time now, we're thinking of leaving. So I find myself thinking about the city with a sense of urgency. What, if anything, have I learnt? Modernity is a battleground for historians. Some, most in fact, would probably agree with historian Joel Mocker when he says that material life is far better today than could have been imagined by the most wild-eyed optimistic 18th century philosopher and that most economists today would regard the industrialization of the 19th century as an undivided blessing. But that phrase, undivided blessing, has come under quite a bit of criticism. 
What about inequality and isolation, stress and anxiety? What about environmental degradation, pollution? What about the dissolution of traditional familial community and religious ties? What about mechanized warfare and modern colonialism? Of course, science, industry, technology have given us so much, but factoring in the whole package, as historian Jeremy Caradonna points out, it begins to look like, at best, a mixed blessing, that our shift to a modern world contains at least some downsides should be obvious to anyone who has been stressed by monotonous cramped commutes been disheartened by the sight of sludge in a once beautiful river, or had a front row view of the first nuclear bomb being dropped on Hiroshima. That shift to modern life really began around the turn of the 1800s, and what's interesting about looking at those first critics is they were talking about people who had one foot in the past, a past irretrievably lost to us, real agrarian lives that were simpler, who could rarely write about themselves, who left a few words, only faintly, that hinted at whole entire worlds that we've lost underneath. To look at what critics of modernity argued is not to idealise a simpler, pre-modern life. One thing that stands out from many diaries of the period is that people were often thankful for the new work in factories and industry that were beginning to spring up, and describe work in the field as just as bad, as well as being irregular and toiling. One working class diary, for example, recalls that as a miner, I did very well. But as we know from the emergence of the internet, historical shifts usually, always, bring surprises, both blessings and curses. In the 1880s, Arnold Toynbee wrote of the period some 80 years before that we now approach a darker period a period as disastrous and as terrible as any through which a nation ever passed. Disastrous and terrible because side by side with a great increase in wealth was seen an enormous increase of pauperism. These critics weren't all doom and gloom. They often struggled with the relationship between the benefits and the costs of moving into a more modern, industrialised world. They weren't all just blind critics of the satanic mills, in Blake's words. In fact, Blake himself was critical, but forward-looking. He didn't just idealise the green and pleasant lands of England. He strangely argued that where man is not, nature is barren. He said, Nature is miserably cruel, wasteful, purposeless, chaotic, and half-dead. 
It has no intelligence, no kindness, no love and no innocence. How can Blake say this when he's also known as one of our most fervent critics of dirty and dehumanising factories? In fact, Blake chose to never leave London. He was buried here in an unmarked grave, forgotten and unknown in 1827. And until his death, he believed that London could become a new Jerusalem, a kind of heaven on earth. He said, I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall sword sleep in my hand, till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. I think this makes Blake a unique critic, set apart from many other thinkers of the period. But before we return to Blake's solution, let's look at what others were saying about an emerging modern life. Marx's longtime collaborator, Frederick Engels, sent by his father from Germany to manage a factory in Manchester, complained how badly the towns were built. The, quote, foul courts, lanes and back alleys reeking of coal smoke and especially dingy from the original bright and red brick turned black with time. He wrote about how the foul smelling stream was full of debris coal black with blackish green slime pools and bubbles of miasmatic gas producing an unendurable stench. And later, John Stuart Mill, while applauding the progress of industry, also said that, I confess I'm not charmed with the ideal of life held out by those who think that the normal state of human beings is that of struggling to get on that the trampling, crushing, elbowing and treading on each other's heels, which form the existing type of social life, are the most desirable lot of humankind. But both were criticising industrialisation that was beginning to look like this, around the middle of the century. However, some 50 years before, if not longer, Others were beginning to notice and comment on the signs of what was starting to spring up and spin. The really dirty, smoggy, blackening factories that we associate with the Industrial Revolution hadn't quite sprang up yet, or were only just beginning to. But there were signs of the new mechanised way of life everywhere. New clocks and more pocket watches, spinning jennies and Water mills used to make fabrics and yarns, the first basic steam engines, railways and canals, the first seed drill to sow seed, not by hand, but by a machine drawn by a horse. These new technologies of the Enlightenment, the writers and critics thought, were changing the very way people thought. They were changing their psychologies, People, many noted, were beginning to look at the world and relationships not as sacred, not as ideals or guides, not as valuable in themselves or for reasons unseen, 
but primarily in terms of usefulness. Enlightenment philosophers and mathematicians like Francis Hutchinson and Daniel Bernoulli believed that usefulness could be, in Hutchinson's words, computed. That usefulness was like a mathematical formula. The German novelist, philosopher and poet Friedrich Schiller said that utility is the great idol of the age, to which all powers are in thrall and to which all talent must pay homage. Weighed in this crude balance, the insubstantial merits of art scarce tip the scale, and bereft of all encouragement, she shuns the noisy marketplace of our century. Art shuns the noisy marketplace of our century. In other words, real art, mysterious art, for some reason it's pushed out, crowded out, not deemed useful enough. The poet and novelist Ludwig Tieck wondered what utility even meant. Is everything just about food, drink, clothing, running better ships and building better machines only to eat better? He said that actually, what's truly exalted neither can nor should be of use. In his novel Franz Sternbold's Journey, Tieck's protagonist argues that the divine cannot be used up. Some things aren't for humanity's vulgar bodily needs. In a materialistic, utilitarian world, our needs are often thought of as needs that we create to feed our bodily desires at the expense of the mind. But he reminds us, the mind shouldn't be the servant of the body. It should be the other way round. The mind is what connects us to the divine through its imagination because it's infinite. That's why Tieck says that art, which should be a response to a world based on utility, art is the pledge of our immortality. Novalis said that modernity converted the infinite creative music of the universe into the uniform clattering of a monstrous mill, and Ernst Hoffmann wrote a novel in which the science and industry of the Enlightenment was being brought to a small country that was a splendid garden full of fairies. Then the forests were being cleared, the river made navigable, potatoes planted, the village schools improved, roads laid down and cowpox inoculated. But the fairies couldn't be converted into useful citizens because they practice a dangerous trade in the miraculous, nor do they shy away from spreading, under the name of poetry, a secret poison that renders people completely unfit for service in the Enlightenment. What was emerging, many thinkers thought, was a kind of one-dimensional existence that pursued usefulness, utility and commerce above all else. But this itself leads to a question. What was it that was being excluded? What was not included in this pursuit, this one-dimensional pursuit of utility? And why? When Wordsworth said that 
the world is too much with us, late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers, he was saying that some part of our potential seemed to be being wasted. Dickens was getting at this too when he started his novel Hard Times by complaining that Victoria England schooling was about facts, 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 at the expense of all else. Shelley also said that real art was being concealed by the accumulation of facts and calculating processes. And here was the point. Something about art and nature wasn't, couldn't be reduced to utility. But why? The German Romantics, who I talked about during a trip to Germany in the last video, complained that the new style of architecture that was taking over Europe was supplanting traditional architectural styles up to the point that everywhere seemed to look and feel the same. They liked to tour and loved the old medieval towns and cities of southern Germany and Europe. They got lost in the alleyways and admired the crooked buildings. Is this why we too love to go to these old European towns with narrow labyrinths of alleyways? The feeling of getting lost or stumbling upon a view, a bar, a museum, a quirky, unique building. What all of this has in common is that doing everything by utility means going in a straight line building on a grid, forgetting something that makes us human, play. What seemed to them to be being sacrificed at the altar of modernity were creativity, spirituality, community, and something that seemed to be the opposite of utility, uselessness, things like play, whimsy, randomness, experimentation, sitting around and daydreaming, playfulness. Someone like Schlegel thought was the very basis of art. Take said that the straight line, because it's always the shortest distance between two points, because it's sharp and definite, seemed to me to express requirement the primary prosaic fundament of life, while crooked lines represent inexhaustibility of play, of adornment, of tender love. What's ironic is that these things aren't necessarily anti-utility, it's just that the utility from them might take longer to develop, the dividends longer to appreciate, the harvest longer to reap. Anticipating Nietzsche some decades later, Novalis said that where there are no gods, ghosts rule. Sacrificing these important things, things like spirituality and community and tradition and language and the mysterious, would leave a gap in people, a longing, an illness even, 
waiting for something monstrous to speak to it, waiting for someone to take advantage of it. People, they thought, felt alienated, the pursuit of money above all else pushed out all other needs. Shelley said that commerce has set the mark of selfishness, the signet of its all-enslaving power, upon a shining ore, and called it gold. In the mask of anarchy, he argued that, for the tyrants used to dwell, so that ye for them are made, loom and plough and sword and spade, with or without your own will, bent to their defence and nourishment, tis to be a slave in soul, and to hold no strong control over your own wills, but be all that others make of ye. At the same time, they noticed that the world was becoming overstimulating, moving faster and faster, changing quicker and quicker. Wordsworth noted that a multitude of causes, unknown to former times, are now acting with a combined force to blunt the discriminating powers of the mind, and unfitting it for all voluntary exertion to reduce it to a state of almost savage torpor. Torpor meant lethargy tiredness, fatigue. Again, he was pointing to this idea that keeping up with being productive in the factory or the city or with quickly moving times and being surrounded by new demands blunted, in his words, a part of the mind. Novalis complained that the restless tumult of distracting social occasions leaves no time for quietly gathering one's thoughts, or for the attentive contemplation of the inner world. This was not to say that they all believed that the natural world was Eden. As we've seen, Blake was critical, and no one was denying that nature could be harsh, dangerous, and cruel. But as Keats said, O ye who have your eyeballs vexed and tired, feast them upon the wideness of the sea. The one-dimensional pursuit of utility and the speed of new sensations and stimulations in urban life led to one metaphor being used over and over in country after country. The great wheel of modernity. is the perfect symbol of modern life. The new spinning jenny, the cogs of factories, the wheels of trains and later cars, the spinning of the newly abundant clocks and pocket watches, it's a useful metaphor because it contains so much. Endlessness, infinity, flow, the spinning of growth, the continuous line of improvement, the circle is both perfect and monotonous at the same time. Blake wrote, 
endless they labour, with bitter food, void of sleep. Though hungry they labour, anxious they rouse, hour after hour, labouring at the whirling wheel, many wheels, with as many lovely weeping daughters. Anticipating Marx, Frederick Schiller wrote that modern life meant that chained to a single little fragment of the whole, man himself develops into nothing but a fragment, everlastingly in his ear the monotonous sound of the wheel that he turns, he never develops the harmony of his being, and instead of putting the stamp of humanity upon his own nature, he becomes nothing more than the imprint of his occupation or of his specialised knowledge. Wilhelm Wackenroder pointed to the ceaseless turn of the eternal will, the uniform whirring on of time to an unvarying tempo, gearwork in which they themselves were enmeshed and pulled forward. And Eichendorf wrote the great cities had caught the old powerful stream in the gears of their machines simply to make it flow faster and faster. There, in its dried out bed, the wretched life of factories spreads its haughty carpets, whose reverse side is nothing but ugly, bare, colourless patches. If Eichendorf had lived to see the extent of things like deforestation and climate change, he would have been dismayed to have been proven right. He continued that man had gone ahead and set up the world for himself as a mechanical, self-running clock. Novalis said that nature itself had been demoted to the level of dull machinery. This being taken along like a wheel or a clock, endlessly spinning, predictably, some external idea of mathematical utility, the ultimate master of man, has another side, of being managed by it, of routines being predictable, to be a slave, stood at the controls, overseeing a system devoid of life, being managed by the system itself. In his poem, London, Blake said, I wandered through each chartered street where the chartered Thames does flow a mark in every face I meet, marks of weakness, marks of woe. He's careful to repeat the word chartered because it means the rights to the streets and the river have been sold, but only to certain people in the name of utility, to be used for me, but not for thee. He goes on to describe in every voice, in every ban, the mind-forged manacles, manacles being another word for handcuffs, people are being trapped, managed, controlled, but not physically, mentally, moved on, told where and when they can trade, banned from begging, banned from the common land which was being enclosed and sold off, policing was growing, permission was required to beg and the impoverished could only do so in the parish they lived in. The 1714 Vagrancy Act had begun to manage people on the streets. It banned things like charitable collectors, entertainers, jugglers, minstrels, men who had abandoned their wives and children, or anyone sleeping or begging and so on. 
The point was that places that were long public or natural were beginning to be managed. In short, all of life was to be subsumed under the great wheel of utility or get out of its way. So let's go back to why, despite it all, Blake believed in the city. I'm at St Paul's Cathedral and about a mile that way is Westminster Abbey and both appear multiple times in Blake's works. Take a look at this image from his poem Jerusalem. Westminster Abbey in light behind what Blake describes as Jerusalem's naked beauty and St Paul's in darkness to the left behind the shadowy figure of Vala. Blake thought that St Paul's Cathedral was everything that was wrong with the geometrical, symmetrical, repetitive architectural style of the time, what was called neoclassicalism. While it certainly looks and I think is very impressive, many at the time were critical of its simple pale colours, its uniformity, its flatness. They thought that that combined with the fact that it was built with vast sums of wealth surrounded by poverty was everything that was wrong with modernity. But moving down the road, he loved Westminster Abbey, an older Gothic building. Many of the Romantics idealised this older architectural style that they thought was more in keeping with nature. Inside old churches, they likened the pillars to tree trunks, the architecture to overgrown forests. They loved the asymmetry. The French romantic Francois-René Chateaubriand likened the experience of being in a cathedral to the sublime labyrinths of a dark forest. Cathedral architecture, he said, originated in the woods. Unlike other romantics, Blake places his ideas about redemption squarely in the middle of London. In this way, he'd despise how the traffic in London had developed, but would probably be happy with some emerging trends. Solar and wind energy, no traffic neighbourhoods, city farms, prioritising parks and green areas, roofs and the sides of buildings covered with greenery. But I don't think he'd believe that we'd gone anywhere near far enough. In other words, nature and civilization, nature and culture, natural and artificial, they shouldn't be antithetical to one another. It's not even that they should coexist. They should be one and the same, synthesized, the same side of one coin even. It's a reflection of the beautiful romantic notion that the romantic writers and ourselves weren't people, thinkers, writers, reflecting on nature, but were nature, reflecting on itself. 
thank you as always for watching and a huge thanks of course as always to my patreons without which this just wouldn't be possible so if you want to see scripts if you want to chat in the discord server if you want your name in the credits but most of all if you just want to help support make this content then click the link in the description below if not you can like you can share you can leave a comment all those things that help the algorithm thank you so much and i'll see you next time imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.